Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Although the murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Tyree Nichols, and others have brought attention to the question of how much police misconduct there has been in recent years, decisions by the Supreme Court, state and local governments, and policymakers have made it nearly impossible to hold police accountable for most abuses of power. In her new book, Shielded, How the Police Became Untouchable, UCLA School of Law professor Joanna Schwartz exposes some of the ways in which our legal system protects police. It's published by Viking and brings Professor Schwartz to our show now. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Haven't you been studying civil rights and police misconduct for over two decades? Was uh, working in places like Rikers Island what got you started? It is uh, my time working uh, at a civil rights firm in New York City, uh, representing people uh, on Rikers Island and those uh, whose rights have been violated by the NYPD and other um, New York area uh, law enforcement agencies definitely primed uh, many of the questions that I spent my time answering uh, in as a as a law professor and then uh, in this book. I actually uh, first started thinking about these things before I went to law school. I worked at an alternative to prison program uh, in also in New York City called the uh, Center for Alternative Sentencing and Employment Services, which was an offshoot of the Vera Institute. Uh, and I worked in the Bronx Supreme Court building um, with people who had been uh, charged usually on their first felonies. And that was what inspired me to go to law school. And then law school is what inspired me to go work at the civil rights firm in New York. And that's what inspired me to come to UCLA and uh, try to study some of the questions that I began asking, uh, you know, a decade before. Unlike cases that make headlines, such as the $27 million Minneapolis paid to the family of George Floyd or the 12 million paid to Breonna Taylor's family, are most claims of police misconduct resolved quietly and with smaller sums? Absolutely. The, the cases that we hear about and read about, uh, the cases that make the news are uh, extraordinary cases and they, they make the news and capture public attention uh, because there is video or other evidence of really egregious misconduct uh, that, that captures public attention. But there are many, many, many more cases of misconduct and sometimes equally egregious misconduct that simply doesn't capture public attention in the same way. And those are really the cases that I focus on hmm. in my book, um, because the kinds of barriers to relief that the Supreme Court and state and local governments have erected uh, to prevent victims of misconduct from getting justice really, really don't work in these cases that capture a, a lot of public attention. They really do their work on these uh, cases that don't receive public attention. Uh, and and those are cases that settle for smaller amounts of money, for sure. Uh, if they settle at all, um, they're often dismissed out of out of hand because they can't get past some of the barriers that the Supreme Court has erected. But who pays for the uh, lawyers and then the settlements afterward? Isn't it us, the, the taxpayers? So that $27 million was paid for by taxpayers in Minneapolis uh, in the case of the uh, the George Floyd killing? 
So the way in which settlements and judgments are budgeted and budgeted for and, and the paid, lawyers as well, right? The yes, lawyers and the lawyers as well, uh, you know, is it, 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 it's complex. Uh, it, it depends, I have to say. I mean, part of part of uh, my research in digging to the to the bottom of uh, these budgeting and payment arrangements uh, makes clear two things. One is it's not the officers. Uh, officers very, very rarely pay settlements and judgments in police misconduct mm-hmm. cases. When I looked at uh, 81 jurisdictions across a six-year period, I found that that officers paid 0.02% of the dollars. So 99.98% of the dollars uh, did not come from officers' bank accounts. Where it actually comes from is a little bit more complicated. Uh, Taxpayers certainly uh, foot the bill um, in many jurisdictions. There's also there there tends to be um, at least sometimes there are insurance agreements, even in large jurisdictions that cover some uh, very high settlements and judgments in these cases. And then in smaller jurisdictions, uh, insurance plays a, a very significant role. So it's not always it's not always the taxpayers dollars, but it is definitely not the officers dollars. Um, and and often it is taxpayers dollars. Now, hasn't the growing use of videos in recent years from police body cameras or bystander videos helped shine a light on police misconduct? What has the impact of videos had on courts and the ways that these cases play out? It's a really interesting question. There, there has been a rise, of course, in videos captured, uh, simply because we have the technology today that we that we didn't have uh, some decades ago, and body camera video doesn't always do a very good job of capturing what's happening in the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, Seth Stoughton, who's a professor at the University of South Carolina did a great uh, presentation about this that's on the New York Times um, website where you can see that officers' body cameras don't don't always give you an accurate view of what is happening. However, body cameras and bystanders' videos certainly give us much more information than what we previously had um, before the advent of those cameras about what is uh, going on, and it's no longer uh, simply an officer's word against a uh, victim's word uh, or a witness's word, but but actual video. So now, the video doesn't always offer a complete and accurate picture of what happened, but hasn't research shown that people can view the same video in different ways? Yes, that's just where I was going to huh. to get. So the videos don't necessarily uh, capture a total view of, of what's happened. And then even... Uh, to, to add an additional layer of, of complication, there is research that people view these videos in different ways. There's a there's a case that I talk about in the book called Scott versus Harris, which was a case where officer an officer uh, basically ran his car into um, another person's car as they were uh, in a in a pursuit. And the question that the court had to answer that was really relevant to their analysis was whether the person driving was a danger to officers or other people uh, in the community. And the Supreme Court uh, looked at that video and eight justices said no one, no reasonable juror, no person could could come to the 
conclusion that he was driving in a safe way. He absolutely was a threat. <laughs> but there was one justice who said, actually, I view it in a different way. I, hmm. I don't think that he was a danger. And then the uh, Supreme Court in a footnote said, here's the video, uh, a link created a link to the video and said, you can all view for yourselves. And three law professors uh, took the court up on that suggestion, showed the video to over a thousand people and really found that uh, although most people did think that the officer was uh, correct or that the that the that the person driving was uh, creating a danger, uh, about a quarter of the people looking at the video came to the other conclusion. And particularly interestingly, the scholars, the researchers found that the ways in which people viewed this video was correlated to race, gender, economic status, community, political leanings, um, and, and other aspects of people's uh, experience, community, um, and, uh, and, 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 and individual uh, uh, aspects of, the, of, their, of their history. And so it's, uh, it's, it's, it offers a, a cautionary uh, tale, I think, about um, what role videos play. Um, and to my mind, you know, an indication that the Supreme Court uh, was, was in the wrong in suggesting that, that no one could view this video uh, in a way that, 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 uh, that, was, that was in favor of the plaintiff's case. Uh, and that we should be much more uh, much more willing to let juries uh, view these videos themselves and come to their own conclusions. Has it always mattered whether the video reveals that a plaintiff didn't resist arrest or throw the first punch? I'm sorry. Can you can you say that again? I was wondering if it's, if it's always mattered whether the video reveals that a plaintiff didn't resist arrest or or throw the first punch. Well, the the way in which the the videos come into play or tend to come into play um, in cases concerns whether officers have used excessive force. Mm -hmm. And the Supreme Court's standard about whether force is excessive um, really uh, doesn't have much in the way of any bright line rules, which I think is one problem with the Supreme Court's Fourth Amendment doctrine. Uh, what the Supreme Court has said is that when courts look at whether force was excessive, they're supposed to consider the totality of the circumstances facing the officer uh, and consider those circumstances from the perspective of the officer in the moment without any what the court has called 2020 hindsight. So. When courts are analyzing whether force is excessive, uh, the, the goal is to look at those totality of the circumstances and, and see uh, whether what the officer did was, was reasonable under those circumstances. Um, if, it, if a person has not resisted at all, thrown no punches, used no, no, no resisting force, that's certainly going to play or at least it should play an important role in the analysis um, and lead more likely to a finding that the use of force was excessive. But even if a person does resist, does throw a punch, for example, as you as you say, uh, force can still be excessive if it's used beyond uh, what is necessary um, for the, the person to stop resisting and, and be arrested. Um, and video can be very important 
in that analysis because there are often times where force is justified by law enforcement uh, on the claim that a person has resisted or is using force against an officer and and the video can reveal uh, the extent to which that is actually true. What are qualified immunity and other constitutional or statutory shields for the police, like no-knock warrants? Boy, there's there's a lot there in that uh, in that question. So, I mean, the Supreme Court. We have a little time. <laughs> right. Well, let we can talk about. I, I think that there's. I think it's important to to sort of pull them out a little bit because. Uh, when you talk about there, there's sort of two different things, um, uh, two different sort of areas of the law that have contributed to uh, things like no knock warrants. Um, and then also the doctrine of qualified immunity is is on top of it. So hmm. let's um, think first about um, no knock warrants, because I, I think that that's uh, it's certainly an issue that's that's come into play um in conversation, certainly following the death of Breonna Taylor, um, and also because I think there's there's a, there's pushes to to think about limits on things like no knock warrants or uh, chokeholds, for example. So the no knock warrants. Um, the, the, I'll say I'll start it a different way. The idea that before a search is conducted that officers should knock and announce their presence is a is a really well established for hundreds of years uh, notion and the, the underlying premise is that it will uh, preserve life um, if if people are are told that police uh, are coming and knocking on the door uh, it will it will advise people that that that's who's knocking on their door in the middle of the night it will save property uh it so because you know a door won't necessarily have to be broken down for example so it's it's an and and, and privacy as well so the the notion that you should knock and announce before entering a home is is well enshrined sort of in the common law for for centuries and the united states constitution prohibits unreasonable searches and seizures which is also uh you know a a, a key protection or at least on paper a key protection uh, for people's homes and property and privacy but the supreme court's fourth amendment decisions mm. have repeatedly interpreted that idea of unreasonable searches and seizures in ways that err on the side of giving police officers leeway in the name of public safety and you can see this in the um Supreme Court's decisions allowing officers to stop and frisk people so long as there's reasonable suspicion uh, that they have done something uh, or that they have broken the law or have some sort of uh, some sort of uh, weapon or other other dangerous item on their person. And that same idea of reasonable suspicion has been used to really water down the idea of no-knock warrants. So despite the fact that no-knock warrants have had this long, long history um, in our society and and our, our view of the sanctity of the home, in the 1990s, the Supreme Court ruled that officers could make no-knock entries so long as they had a, quote, reasonable suspicion that knocking and announcing before they entered would be dangerous 
or would be futile. And that reasonable suspicion standard has essentially eliminated the requirement for no-knock warrants in all practical terms. Uh, It can be the basis for uh, judges to authorize warrants allowing no-knock entries. And then even if there's a requirement in the warrant that they're, that the officers knock. They don't have to follow that requirement if they have a reasonable suspicion under the circumstances uh, that, you know, knocking ahead of time and announcing their presence uh, will be dangerous or futile. So this this these bright line rules uh, that you might uh, imagine would be useful, and in fact that evidence has shown uh, can be useful, are really uh, rejected by the Supreme Court again and again in their Fourth Amendment Mm -hmm. cases. And the same is true in use of force. for the reasons that I that I mentioned before, that the Supreme Court standard talks about reasonableness under the totality of the circumstances. This is a, a standard that really uh, doesn't have much in the way at all of bright line rules. And, you know, the, there's been research uh, showing that bright line rules actually work very well in the in the 1970s, uh, the NYPD prohibited shooting into cars because it was resulting in a lot of death and it was simply too dangerous. And police killings went down dramatically as a result. And there's multiple examples from other jurisdictions. So bright line rules can work in policing, but the Supreme Court has really pushed against them in ways that give police a tremendous amount of discretion under the Constitution. My guest on today's Leonard Lopez at Large is Joanna Schwartz. Her book, Shielded, How the Police Became Untouchable, published by Viking. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. And the Supreme Court has uh, has eased up uh, legal standards regarding qualified immunity recently because it's a more conservative Supreme Court. Well, the, this, the court's evolution of qualified immunity doctrine has been going on for several decades. And hmm. in the, the Roberts court has been quite active in its qualified immunity cases. Uh, but this is a shift that's been happening for some time. Um, it may be worth me explaining what qualified immunity is, um, even though it's been on the, the forefront of uh, conversation particularly since the murder of George Floyd. It's a very complicated doctrine. I think people have a hard time understanding what it is, as well as how it's evolved. So qualified immunity is a protection over and above the the constitutional law and the, and the standards that we were just talking about, even if a person shows that an officer has violated their constitutional rights, an officer is entitled to qualified immunity, which protects them from damages in civil cases. It doesn't have anything to do with criminal cases, but protects them from damages in civil cases if the officer hasn't violated what the Supreme Court calls clearly established law. Um, and or, made a, or made a yeah. reasonable mistake or considered to have been making have made a reasonable mistake. Well, the the that is how people talk about qualified immunity. But the way in which the Supreme Court has actually framed the doctrine and the way in which lower courts understand it is that a, that a person has violated 
even if a person has violated the Constitution, um, that and, and I should say the Constitution itself recognizes uh, a protection for officers if they make reasonable mistakes. When the, the Supreme Court talks about the Fourth Amendment and unreasonable searches and seizures, part of what the court says is that reasonable mistakes are not constitutional violations. So you can, an officer can arrest the wrong person, search someone who doesn't have any weapons on them, even shoot a person who is unarmed if they made a reasonable but mistaken, or if they had a reasonable but mistaken belief that that person was armed or, um, or that they had done something wrong that justified their arrest. So the Constitution itself is already protecting against reasonable mistakes. But don't plaintiffs have to include many details in their complaints to get past a motion to dismiss? Oh, sure. Well, that's that's another that's yet another challenge. So uh, so far to just keep track, we have uh, that that a, a plaintiff has to show that their constitutional rights were violated, uh, which, you know, a reasonable mistake is not enough. They have to get past qualified immunity, which essentially requires people to show that there is a prior court case with virtually identical facts where a court found that someone's constitutional rights was violated. And then, as you say, before they even get to discovery, the opportunity to get evidence from uh, the defendants in the case, the plaintiff has to plead what's called a plausible complaint which the Supreme Court has said is a complaint that has facts uh, sufficient to show that their rights were violated. This isn't always a challenge, but it is a challenge, particularly in cases against local governments, which require additional details about unlawful policies or customs. It can be difficult in cases where there were, where a person was killed under circumstances that the family members are not privy to, don't know what happened. Um, and so in these kinds of situations, it can be difficult for a plaintiff whose rights were violated or whose loved one was killed to get uh, the enough evidence before discovery at this original complete uh, complaint pleading stage to get past that standard uh, and to get to the discovery that they could then use to plead their case. Recently, advocates for police reforms have focused much of their attention on the federal government. But is that likely in the current political climate? I'm, I'm thinking about the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, which failed after more than a year of negotiation. And uh, Congress hasn't required police departments to gather or disclose information about things like how many people officers kill each year. Yeah, it's it's a it's a it's a pretty uh, it's a pretty distressing uh, situation at the federal level. I was just reading this morning that Cory Booker is planning to take up uh, efforts to have some sort of modified um, federal policing bill uh, passed in the near future, uh, prompted by the murder of Tyree Nichols. Uh, but yes, after more than a year of negotiations, the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. Uh, did not get passed. I think that there's a lot of important things that the federal government could do. They could end qualified immunity. They could make local governments uh, more responsible for the constitutional violations of their officers. And as you note, they also could demand 
data collection. I think, you know, we, we don't have, as you said, good information about how uh, often people are killed by police, uh, far less how often uh, non-fatal force is used against them. We don't have stop data. There's, a, there's, there's so much data we don't have about policing. And the federal government has been trying for decades to gather this information. Um, actually, the, uh, the Department of Justice or the Attorney General got the authority after the beating of Rodney King in 1994 to collect data about police misconduct. And they didn't uh, make good on that authority. Uh, they tried to get the information from police departments. Police departments wouldn't turn it over. And so they've never collected that data. And again, in 2015, after the, uh, after the Guardian and the Washington Post started publishing uh, data about the number of police killings, the FBI said that they were gonna start collecting this data. Again, it was voluntary, and they never got more than 50% of local law enforcement agencies to provide the data. Joe Biden, a year ago, passed an executive order authorizing uh, or saying that he was going to make this national police misconduct database, and it still hasn't gotten off the ground. So data collection and dissemination is incredibly important, and it's, and it's remarkable how little we know about policing and police misconduct uh, around the country. But unless the federal government authorizes this collection, creates meaningful, real sanctions for departments or states that don't produce that information, we're just going to have a repeat uh, of the same you know, good intentions with lack of follow through for this bill as well. Why is it harder to bring civil rights suits in some parts of the country than in others? This is is it true question. that in many parts of the country, uh, uh, people whose rights have been violated will find it difficult or impossible to even find a skilled civil rights lawyer willing to represent them? It is true, and it may seem surprising given public uh, public discourse about the number of police, or excuse me, the number of uh, civil rights attorneys. You might think that there would be uh, hundreds of civil rights attorneys in every courthouse just looking for uh, a case to bring. But in many parts of the country, there really aren't uh, lawyers that are skilled and experienced in civil rights litigation willing to take these cases. Uh, as I talk about in the, in the book, you will find small but, but very skilled uh, pockets of lawyers, certainly in the large uh, cities of the Great Migration and, and in places in the South um, as well, but they are they are few and far between in many parts of the country. And part of the reason is that these cases are costly uh, and challenging to bring. I mean, many lawyers who bring civil rights cases are looking at civil rights cases as one of many kinds of cases they bring. They probably bring personal injury cases or medical malpractice cases or breach of contract cases. And in each case, when they're deciding whether to take a case, they consider how, how and whether they're going to get paid, uh, of course, because they need to keep the lights on um, from, from the work that they do. And police misconduct cases uh, are cases that 
uh, where lawyers tend not to get paid anything unless their client wins. And uh, when they win, they the lawyer would get a percentage, usually somewhere around a third. And if the client loses, they receive nothing. And these are cases um, that are difficult to bring because of the pleading requirements that we've talked about, because of the constitutional requirements that we've talked about, because of qualified immunity. Uh, additionally, they can be difficult to win at trial. Even though there's been more criticism of the police recently, uh, the policing is still one of our uh, most trusted professions in the country. And people who have been mistreated by the police are often, although not always, uh, people who have had prior contact with the criminal justice system. Uh, they may be people of color. They may be people um, who uh, have uh, were, were in the midst of a mental health crisis. All uh, characteristics that may make juries, sometimes make juries, less sympathetic to uh, to their claims. And so even when a plaintiff uh, might win, they might not win very much. All of those factors, all of those difficulties of bringing a case and winning a case make lawyers less inclined to spend their time and money on these types of cases. I've talked to a lot of lawyers who, uh, who have brought a case or two, a civil rights case or two that they were really moved by and didn't feel that they could turn away, and then spent hundreds of hours and probably tens of thousands of dollars in their time bringing these cases only to lose, uh, and then decided, you know what, I'm going to go back to my personal injury work. I'm going to go back to my medical malpractice cases, because those are more reliable ways to make money. So for, for it's, it's, it's hard to believe, I think, for some people who uh, hear about attorneys flooding the courts and, and listen to the rhetoric um, about you know, lawyers delighting overtaking frivolous civil rights cases. But there are many people who cannot find a lawyer at all um, because these claims are so difficult to bring. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Starting a war, screaming peace at the same time. All the corruption and justice, the same crimes. Always a problem if we do or don't fight and we die, we don't have the All same right. I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Joanna Schwartz. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of her book, Shielded, How the Police Became Untouchable. Just go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 during today's show, and we'll be happy to send you a copy. That's give and the number 2 WBAI.org. Org, or you can also write givetowbai.org or call 212-209-2950. But don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. And we thank you very much. And return to Joanna Schwartz. Her book, Shielded, How the Police Became Untouchable, is published by Viking. She's a professor of law at UCLA. You mentioned people of color. How much of a role has race played in many of the cases that um, 
we either have heard of or have been buried? I think race, issues of race and racism uh, and anti-blackness play a huge role in our history of policing, uh, in the uh, current uh, stories that we often hear that um, that capture public attention, and also cases that you have have never heard of. So, if you go back to the very beginning, um, police forces in the South were really outgrowths of um, of of slavery um, and of of efforts to. Uh, catch and return uh, escaping slaves. And so the sort of notion of race and racism was was built into policing uh, from the start. And evidence over the years and the decades have indicated that police uh, have disproportionately used force uh, against people of color mm-hmm. and uh, black people uh, throughout its throughout the history of policing. The data today show that black people are more likely to be stopped, more likely to be searched, more likely to be assaulted, uh, and more likely to be killed by police than white people. Uh, this is also true for uh, indigenous people. Uh, for Latino people. So this is not simply um, an issue of uh, of force against black people, although I think some of the many of the cases that have captured public attention have involved black people. Uh, but indigenous people and Latino people also have been disproportionate, uh, have received uh, have been assaulted and violated disproportionately compared to white people. Usually, the when it is a racial matter, the police are white and the uh, the people, the victims are black. But much has been made about the fact that all but one of the police officers involved in the murder of Tyree Nichols were African Americans. That is true, and some have suggested, including the chief, I believe, that that the fact that the officers were black is a sign that race didn't play a role. And I really disagree with that characterization. Uh, I think that the the studies have really shown that uh, the disproportionate use of police force uh, is against black victims. And so, and Tyree Nichols, the black man. So the, the disproportionate use of force against people of color and black people is absolutely uh, at play and evidenced by uh, the murder of Tyree Nichols. The fact that the officers were black doesn't change the disproportionate use of force against black people. And I think it points importantly to, uh, to, to broader issues about policing, police violence, um, and the culture of police violence, which really transcends the race of the officer. Uh, it's it's not as, it's not really about the race of the officer, but about the race of the victim. Now, Derek Chauvin and uh, the other three police officers in that killing have been sentenced to prison because of their roles in George Floyd's death, uh, the indictments and the murder of Beona Taylor. Do you think that's had much of an impact on the minds of of police since? Because uh, 
Uh, I would think that uh, uh, these cases would have would lead a police officer to have second thoughts before engaging in dangerous behavior. I can't know what is going on in the minds of law enforcement officers. I certainly know that there has been uh, there have been surveys suggesting that of officers suggesting that all of the public attention around um, these cases uh, has had an effect and it's on officers' minds. And certainly, you would um, think. Generally, with the way that deterrence is supposed to work, that if officers are being charged uh, and convicted, that that would have a deterrent effect. It's important to note, though, that these cases are, are really unusual in that officers are being charged and convicted. Uh, the, the evidence that is available suggests that officers are charged in less than 2% of uh, killings and convicted in, in a far smaller percentage uh, of those cases. So that number may tick up slowly um, in, over time, um, given these turns of events and the possibility of prosecution may be on people's minds more. Uh, but we certainly get the sense from the video that you see of Tyree Nichols' murder, that officers don't seem particularly concerned, even though they know they're wearing body cameras, uh, about the, the assault no. that they inflicted. The Washington Post reports that lawsuits to settle allegations of misconduct by more than 7,600 officers from around the country have amounted to more than $3.2 billion over the past decade. So we're talking about a lot of money here. You would think that police departments and cities and uh various localities would be very concerned about that. It's, it's, uh, they're, they're paying out a lot of money. Well, they are. I mean, it's, it, it, it sounds, it sounds like quite a lot of money. I think by anybody's estimation, it is a lot of money, but it's also worth noting that if you look at individual departments, I looked at a hundred jurisdictions across the country and found that settlements and judgments uh, in police misconduct cases amounted to less than 1% of most government's budgets. You compare that to the one quarter or one third of government's budgets that are taken up with the police department's budget, and the amount that's paid in these cases is, is actually uh, more of a drop in the bucket than those large aggregated numbers really suggest. My guest on today's Leonard Lopez at Large is Joanna Schwartz. Her book, Shielded, How the Police Became Untouchable, is published by Viking. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. At least 24 states have laws commonly referred to as a Law Enforcement Officer Bill of Rights, a LEOBOR. What are they? Uh, law enforcement officers' bill of rights are, uh, are, are agreements or, or recognition of uh, various protections for law enforcement officers. Um, these are usually negotiated with unions 
and they can uh, they can govern. Um, they have a bunch of different protections. They they often have restrictions on investigations into misconduct. They can create limitations on officer discipline. Uh, they can create limitations on transparency and civilian oversight of law enforcement officers. Um, they guarantee they, the right of an officer to be notified when uh, they are under investigation and who will be questioning them. That is that that those kinds of protections, yes, as well, can be into law enforcement officers uh, bill of rights. Absolutely. They're, they are really uh, uh, protections um, that that make it more difficult to investigate and discipline uh, officers for misconduct and to uh, get information about past misconduct. Don't at least 15 states limit how far back misconduct may have occurred for a complaint to be investigatable or and how long investigations may take or who may access records during and after the investigation? That sounds that sounds right. I, I have um, not done my own independent research into law enforcement officers bills mm. of rights. But uh, there are those kinds of restrictions that many states have adopted. It's actually part of the reason that uh, I have focused my research on um, civil suits, um, in part because these law enforcement officer bill of rights uh, protections make internal discipline and internal investigations so difficult to achieve. There is certainly the, the alternative, or in addition, um, these kinds of law enforcement officers' bill of rights should be uh, reconsidered um, and done away with, um, if possible. Well, in Chicago, officers who were subject to more than one paid claim amounted to more than $380 million of the nearly $528 million in payments in that city. Uh, certain police officers tend to cross the line more than others, wouldn't you say? Yeah. Yes, I would, I would definitely say that. Um, there is a lot of evidence uh, that there are uh, some officers who, that, that a smaller percentage of officers end up with uh, the lion's share of misconduct allegations and also lawsuits um, against those officers. Part of what I talk about in my book is that uh, police departments don't do a good job of gathering and analyzing that information to determine who those officers are uh, or the kinds of uh, misconduct that they have uh, gotten into over time. There, there is a rise of what are called early intervention systems that law enforcement agencies are using to collect this data. but. Uh, First of all, they don't tend to include information from lawsuits, which I think is, is a big mistake. And they also uh, don't, don't use the data and analyze the data um, in ways that really can uh, get to the, to the root of some of these uh, problems. So uh, yes, I think that, that in many- And why do you think that is? So, well, Why do you think that is it the power of the police unions or uh, fear that people are going to see uh, the the community as anti-police? You know, I think that there's there's a couple of different reasons. I think that 
Um, certainly, uh, law enforcement officers, bills of rights, and other union agreements can um, limit the ways in which this uh, data is used. My research is really focused on the, the silos that have been created within local governments that prevent information from lawsuits from being used by uh, police departments in their supervision of officers. And there, I've seen some of those silos being created by the city attorney's office, who represents the officers in these cases, who, doesn't, who don't want information about these uh, lawsuits uh, being turned over to the police department for fear that it will increase liability. Um, but you know, my, my point of view is that the, these lawsuits are sources of really valuable information about mm -hmm. uh, their, their officers, and that that information should be part of um, the department's assessment of how to reduce risk and how to improve officer conduct. A number of places have taken up important police reform legislation. Some of the most ambitious changes have been enacted in Colorado, New Mexico, and in my home city, New York City. <laughs> That's right. There, there have been a number of efforts uh, taken by states to improve uh, policing and police reform at that state level. And I think that's a terrifically important uh, aspect of the current state of policing and police reform, especially as the Supreme Court doesn't seem interested in taking up um, mm. any of uh, these issues. And Congress uh, has really been stymied by um, partisan uh, disputes. And we really are left with the states. And there are important reforms that are happening in states, I, I think Colorado is is what I consider to be um, the gold standard uh, among police reform bills. Although I I applaud everything that's happened in New Mexico and uh, New York City, uh, but I'll I'll describe Colorado's bill briefly because I do think it's it's really valuable to to see. So it, Colorado creates uh, has created a right to sue for constitutional violations in their state courts. Um, uh, in, in most other places, you can only bring this claim under federal law in the federal courts. But as a state law claim brought in state courts, the state is also able to um, prohibit the defense of qualified immunity in these claims. And so in these Colorado state court claims for constitutional violations, qualified immunity isn't a defense. Uh, Colorado also requires that local governments pay the settlements and judgments in these cases, which I consider to be important in order to make sure that victims uh, are compensated for their losses. But it also provides that if an officer is found by jurisdiction to have acted in bad faith, the officer can be required to contribute $25,000 or 5% mm. of a settlement or judgment, uh, whichever is, is less. Um, and then there, there is a, there a provision that they don't have to pay if they prove that they don't have the resources, in which case the city picks up the entire tab. But I think that this is an important way of uh, getting justice for people whose constitutional rights have been violated, getting around qualified immunity, and also creating a financial sanction for officers who have acted in bad faith. 
So why do you think more states haven't? Why do you think more states haven't followed Colorado's lead? Well, a lot of states have taken up bills. More than half of the states across the country have taken up bills that would do something similar, that would create a right to sue without the protections of qualified immunity. And I've participated in legislative hearings for a number of those states. And what I'll tell you is that uh, the union, usually union officials, sometimes city government uh, representatives, have testified strongly against these bills, and they are basing their opposition on claims that officers would be bankrupted for reasonable mistakes uh, if we do away with qualified immunity, that local governments will be bankrupted for uh, the misconduct by their officers. And these are claims about uh, too much justice that have been made in opposition to civil rights litigation, uh, civil rights legislation since, you know, for 150 years, since, since the right to sue was first enshrined. And I've spent much of my legal career uh, studying these justifications for limitations on the right to sue, and particularly for qualified immunity, and have found that they just don't, uh, they're just not true. They're, they're overblown or sometimes simply false. Officers aren't bankrupted in these cases. They, they virtually never pay, as I, as I previously mentioned. And the Fourth Amendment to the United States Constitution already protects officers from liability when they make reasonable mistakes. But those those fears, those myths about the dangers of too much justice have proven very powerful mm. to legislators. And, and a lot of these bills have either died completely or been put off um, for another year uh, because of those concerns. And we're, New Hampshire uh, just had a legislative hearing, I think, last week um, about this kind of bill. I testified in legislative hearing in Washington State, uh, which is also, again, taking up this kind of legislation. So it is, it is there are efforts in states and, and uh, really important efforts going on in states around the country right now to rethink the standards for police misconduct uh, and liability. But there's also very strong opposition from union officials and uh, local government officials. My concern is that those, that opposition is really based on falsehoods or exaggerations about the dangers of eliminating qualified immunity. But these high-profile cases, the ones that dominate the news, are having an impact, aren't they? Do you see anything positive uh, coming in the future? I absolutely think that these high-profile incidents uh, are bringing attention back to issues of police misconduct. And certainly the murder of George Floyd uh, and uh, Breonna Taylor captured public attention in mm -hmm. May 2020 and really got what uh, inspired uh, the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, of course, but also these state governments to um, take up police reform, um, some of which was successful. And local governments also have uh, passed uh, various restrictions on use of force um, and other really important reforms. None of it has, has, cured, has cured us of police misconduct. I don't think that there's any uh, silver bullet here, but, but there have been important strides 
uh, that have happened since George Floyd's murder. And then, of course, it's important to note that that you know, in the months after George Floyd's murder, attention slipped away from this topic. It became not the, the priority, not things that people were talking about. And unfortunately, I mean, unfortunately is, is not strong enough word. Tragically, the murder of Tyree Nichols has again brought these same evergreen issues to our public consciousness and again are promoting conversations in Congress and in state legislatures and the conversation that we're having here today. I just I just desperately hope that more can happen in this moment and that and that it is really taken advantage of. Um, when I wrote my book, Shielded, part of what I wrote in the introduction was let's not wait for another hmm. viral video to capture our consciousness. Let's get let's get moving on these reforms. Unfortunately, we've run out of time. I'm so sorry because this has been a fascinating conversation. Uh, I've been speaking with uh, Joanna Schwartz, professor of law at UCLA, about her book, Shielded, How the Police Became Untouchable, published by Viking. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. And that brings us to the end of our show. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access uh, our 700 or so past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed 1 million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. And as I mentioned earlier, if you make a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large right now, you can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, Shielded, How the Police Became Untouchable by Joanna Schwartz. So why not make that call right now to 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org. And uh, you might also consider becoming a BAI buddy, a sustaining member for $10, $15, $20, $25, however much a month you uh, feel comfortable with. It allows us to plan for the future. And we will be happy to send you a BAI tote bag if you become a sustaining member for $10 a month or more. But remember, BAI relies totally on listener donations. We don't run ads. We don't take foundation grants. And uh, we're the only station in New York dial that's 100% listener-sponsored. So please give us that call. We hope you can join us tomorrow when my guest will be Sid Arthur Cara who will be discussing his new book, Cobalt Red, How the Blood of the Congo Powers Our Lives. We'll see you then. 